coming up on the Assassins Podcast, we've got Bill Clerico, founder and managing partner at Convective Capital, previous co-founder and CEO of WePay, jumping on the show to talk about building companies in a recession and Bill's model for evaluating investment opportunities. Bill talks about the journey his team went through in uncovering PM fit for WePay and the signals that helped WePay shift the transition from a consumer to a B2B company. We talk a little bit about the current state of the payments business and thinking about how to pick categories that are less evolved for disruption. We also touch on hiring a little bit more and hiring the right profile of employee for the right stage of your venture. And then Bill rounds it out with his advice for navigating the fundraising market over the next 18 months. And as a startup founder, why founders should be building in climate, more specifically in fire tech. It's a hot episode. All right, without further ado, assassins, let's get into the show. See them dollar signs, assassin state of mind, assassin state of mind, hustle, grind. See them dollar signs way above the bottom line, assassin state of mind, hustle, grind. See them dollar signs, assassin state of mind, assassin state of mind, hustle, grind. See them dollar signs way above the bottom line, assassin state of mind. They say money over everything, everything, nation again. Shopping for a wedding ring, salary. What is going on, everybody? Happy Friday. It's your host, Justin Vandehey, here at the Assassin's Podcast, where every week we have founders on talking about their journeys, taking their ventures from zero to one. This week, we've got a great guest on. He's the former founder and CEO of WePay, which he sold to JP Morgan for $400 million, and now the founder and managing partner at Convective Capital. Bill Clerico, welcome to the Assassin's Podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I thought we could just kick it off with maybe just some general intros, share a little bit about your background and just getting into Convective a little bit. Yeah. So I started my career as a tech investment banker in 2007, which was one of the best years to be a tech investment banker, followed by 2008, which was one of the worst years to be a tech investment banker. <laughs> um, and one of the things I learned through that one year in investment banking was that I didn't want to be a tech investment banker, but B, I got to work with a bunch of amazing clients who were technology entrepreneurs that were building, selling companies. And I just, the more time I spent with our clients, the more I was like, I want to go do that. And so uh, I left my investment banking job in August of 08, about 10 days before Lehman Brothers imploded to go start WePay. I have this very bad habit of starting new ventures in the midst of downturns, but we went to go, went on to start WePay. WePay was initially a consumer payments company. We were making it easy for friends to collect money from friends to split the dinner check. Um, that idea was a, was a cool idea, but a terrible business. And we ended up pivoting and becoming payments infrastructure software behind some really large online marketplaces and software companies. So we were the payment processor behind GoFundMe and Toast and, and a bunch of folks like that. And we built that business up over about 10 years, sold to JP Morgan, and I kind of went on to run a payments business at JP Morgan for a couple of years. After that, I left JP Morgan, knew I wanted to work on climate, wanted to invest. I was spending a bunch of time up in Northern California and had a, a couple of personal run-ins with wildfire and just started to really dig deep on the topic. 
and developed a hypothesis around fixing wildfire with technology and, and really thinking about how wildfire is kind of the tip of the spear of climate-related disaster. And so started to invest in some companies that were, were helping utilities and insurance companies and governments and homeowners adapt. Those started to go well, and uh, we actually raised the fund. So we are Connected Capital is a venture capital fund focused on wildfire technology investing. And we were investors in one of your uh, previous guests in Pano. And so in, in any event, that's what I do for a living now. I guess for the opportunities that you're evaluating in, in fire tech, what, what are sort of some of the frameworks or the criteria that you and your team use to create the opportunities that, that you go after? The, the big opportunity in fire tech is that there's a number of other technologies that have been proven in other markets and just haven't been applied to wildfire. Wildfire causes tens of billions of dollars of economic damage annually to utilities, to insurance companies, to businesses, to homeowners, to, to government property. If you can build solutions that can mitigate that damage, there's, there's really big economic opportunities. We generally use a framework of kind of three big buckets. There's kind of three things you need to do to solve wildfire. First is fuel management. So how do you sort of better manage your landscapes so that you can remove fuel from the forest? And so when fires do happen, they're less severe. Second is community resilience. So how do you make homes and assets and infrastructure more resilient to fire uh, when it does happen? Uh, and then the third is suppression. How do you sort of more quickly detect fire when it happens and, and go and put it out? And so, you know, we're generally looking for technology solutions across those three buckets that have a really clear economic buyer, like a utility or an insurance company or a, a government safety agency that is willing to purchase those types of solutions. What are some of the other companies in the space that you're excited about? Are there some forward-looking technology that I know Pan, I loved what Pano was doing when we did the evaluation and uh, dug deep into that, but are, are there some others that, that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, another company I'm really excited about is called Overstory. And so Overstory is a, a company based in the Netherlands, and they are using satellite imagery to help utilities better understand vegetation risk to their power lines. And you mm -hmm. might say, oh, it's kind of a niche, it's kind of a weird thing. But PG&E, for example, here in California, spends over a billion dollars a year trimming power lines. And so and right now, how do they determine what segments to go trim? They send people out in pickup trucks to go look at the lines. And with hundreds of thousands of miles of lines, you can think about how effective that is and how costly it is and, and, and all that. So with Overstory, it's a SaaS company. They sell a, a software solution that helps utilities monitor their transmission networks, prioritize the highest risk areas to sort of maintain and trip and, and monitor that the work gets kind of done well. And so it's a pretty exciting company out of, out of the Netherlands. Taking a step back, talking about the WePay glory days, it seems to have been one of those classic 12-year uh, overnight success stories that you hear about. Um, and that was similar for our team at Disco. It was like, it, it, was a, it was a grind for quite a few of the years. And I, I was curious when you're going through it, a lot of the, our listeners here, our founders focused on that first phase of zero to one. When you were getting WePay off the ground, what were sort of the early signals that you were onto something massive? And how did you and Rich go about the process of uncovering PMFIT? Yeah, there's, uh, we could probably do a whole podcast on just that yeah. question because it was such a journey. You know, I'll say in the early days, um, we got lots of signals that we ignored that we were on the wrong, because we, we were on the wrong path and we had lots of signals that we were on the wrong path and, and, and just chose to keep sort of blindly plowing ahead. Like I mentioned before, we were a consumer business. So we were trying to make it easy for friends to collect money from friends, split the dinner check. 
And we thought, hey, you've got PayPal, Venmo didn't quite exist yet. We wanted to build like a mobile social version of, of, of PayPal. Um, and, and I think we as like 23 year olds thought everyone in the world splits the dinner check when they go out to dinner. And this is a use case people are doing all the time and, and, and all that. And I think the reality is that ages where people split the dinner check is sort of, you know, 23 to 30, maybe, uh, and or 18 to 30. And a lot of times it's kind of an infrequent use case and people are really unwilling to pay fees. And it took us kind of a couple of years to really prove that to ourselves. And along the way, we would sort of hear that feedback from users. They'd use it once. They'd sort of say, yeah, that was helpful. And they would be nice and polite to us, but they weren't like begging us for it. And so that was just sort of a, a struggle, you know, and, and we just kept kind of plowing ahead. We were pouring money into growth. We were buying ads. We actually at one point hired like inside salespeople to try to like reach out to users and call college clubs and organizations. We just weren't getting that like really enthusiastic reception from, from customers. Where we eventually did get that reception, which kind of led us down the, the right path was we had other friends who were entrepreneurs and founders building other software companies. And they were like, oh, you man, you guys really learned a lot about payments. Like, can you just come tell us what we need to do? How do we build a payment stack? And so we're like giving out all this advice from people that were asking us all these questions. And, you know, eventually the light bulb went off that said, hey, we actually need, you know, maybe we could, that's a product. Maybe we could build a set of services that make it easier to build payments into these software applications. And because we're getting a lot more enthusiasm from them than from our actual customer. And so that was sort of the, the moment we built an API initially as like a small side project with one engineer. And we were just getting a lot of demand for that that API and so eventually sort of switched our business and, and kind of went all in on that new strategy. But it was, we wandered the desert for a while, banging our heads against the wall. That had to have been such like a difficult call to make that switch and a really critical point in WePay's growth. And so how did you go about gaining the conviction that that was the right call to do? Because I know you mentioned that at the time, I think before that, there was like 70% of the revenues were coming in from the consumer side of the business. And so was it just like pretty clear that it wasn't working, that the business signal was there? Or what What kind of gave you the conviction at that time that it was the right call to make? Yeah, I think in hindsight, it was way too slow to make that switch. We kind of launched the API and it was running in parallel to the rest of our business for probably at least 18 months. You know, we didn't, it wasn't like we launched it and the brilliant CEO that I was like <laughs> made the call and we'd switched. It's like we launched it. We got a couple of initial customers. There were some signs of life, but we still had this vast majority of the companies working on this other business, which was like sort of working because we were investing in it so heavily, but not really flying off the shelves. And eventually we just had such great growth on the API relative to how little resources we were putting into it. And we were like, we were 90% of our investment was over here. And yet this thing is just growing by itself. And so when you looked at our business with like 70%, the legacy business, 30% API, but when you looked at growth, it was like 80 or 90% growth was coming from the API and, and not that much growth the rest of the business. Eventually that just sort of became so obvious that you couldn't ignore it. And we, and that was when we made the switch. But, you know, I think in hindsight, had we made that switch a year earlier, we would have created a lot more value. We were a little bit slow to make that, that transition. And I think it ended up costing us in the long run. Now, now it all worked out, but it was, you know, sort of a costly delay for sure. Yeah. 
in the payment space in general, like, do you feel like there's, I, I look at, you know, Coupa had a transaction recently. I'm looking at like, I don't know. I look at other bill pay services, bill.com. Stripe is obviously a monster. Do you feel like there's still quite a bit of room for innovation in and around the payment space? I know you've been in fire tech now for a while and that's mostly your focus, but just curious to get your perspective on sort of the payment space overall, if, if you've got a point of view on it. Yeah. I think when we were starting in 2008, it felt like the common refrain I heard from most VCs I pitched was like, that space is highly regulated. The banks own it. There's been like one successful story in payments. That's PayPal. And that was like a total unicorn, lightning struck, brilliant team. They managed to pull off an acquisition, but like no one, no technology companies have been successful in payments. And like, boy, were they wrong. I mean, like the last yeah. 15 years, it's been like the best segment venture by far. And, you know, we've seen tons of companies build massive payments. I think it's certainly way more competitive today than it was then. I mean, I think as you've just seen these juggernauts get created, now you've got tons of different payment companies chasing each opportunity in the, in the vertical. That being said, like, uh, you know, payments is basically the, the ultimate market for payments. is really kind of GDP. It's like anytime money is changing hands, there's payments opportunity. A lot of those payments today still flow through like the JP Morgans of the world via checks or through sort of more traditional networks. And so I think turning those, those sort of analog payments, digital payments, I think is still a massive opportunity. Now it's way more competitive than it was when we were starting. And, and I think as I sort of looked at that landscape, it's just like slugging it out with all the other brilliant people, changing, chasing those opportunities wasn't where I wanted to spend my time in this next chapter. I, I've been, it was one of the things I got excited about in Climate was that I hear a lot of that same like common refrain about like, oh, climate's really capital intensive. The economic buyers aren't clear. And so I just think it's way less competitive than some of the other sectors of technology. There's still some really promising signs about the market. So I think if we're, one of the things that served me well, we was being early in payments and kind of riding that wave. And you know, I'm hopeful that we're at that same stage in, in climate resilience. And I think it's hopefully a wave we can ride for the next 10 or 15 years. Yeah, I just I was listening to Michael Siebel recently on the YC podcast talk about tar pit ideas and oftentimes the water looks great. So it's like, oh, let's jump in because it feels like it's it's clearer than it actually is. But I think to your point, it's oftentimes even those markets that look highly regulated could be messy. That's where it's oftentimes, yeah, untapped. And I feel like that's yeah, it's just kind of that pattern of and I even that shift from consumer, your consumer focus to the infrastructure of business to business payments, it's kind of the same, the same pattern where it was like, oh, maybe the consumer side looked like a tar pit idea, but then when you pivoted into going a little deeper onto the infrastructure side, it was like all of a sudden, damn, there's a ton of untapped opportunity here. Okay, shifting gears a little bit. You've you've obviously you've been incredibly successful out of the gate, going from zero to one, have a ton of experience building and founding a, a great team. I, I was curious, just that, uh, on the hiring side and thinking about talent acquisition and growing your team in that first year, after raising your first round of capital, how did you all think about managing your operating expenses, growth, and your hiring plan to support the, the business? Yeah, I think as like a first time CEO that really had no idea what I was doing, like we, I, I, I wouldn't say I was like terribly thoughtful, but I think a couple of lessons I learned in hindsight, I think one was we were trying to raise money in like 2008, 2009, 2010. And it was like 
a terrible time to be raising venture capital. <laughs> I, I know the markets today are rocky, but you still have like tens of billions of dollars of capital in VC funds that are still writing checks. At the time, it was like literally no one was writing checks. It was people thought we were going into the Great Depression. And so it was being like hyper lean was just like in our DNA because I was like funding the whole business off of my one year investment banking savings. Hmm. We tried to raise money for 18 months. We were totally unsuccessful. We got $18,000 from Y Combinator in exchange for 7% of the company. We were psyched and we took it. And then we went on to raise, after YC, we raised a $1.7 million seed round at a $3 million valuation. And I think with that in mind, we were hyper lean on, on talent. And most of the people we hired were sort of unproven friends of ours or friends of friends. And but were willing to like work really hard and kind of be all in on the, on the company. And I think given the environment we were in and the capital we had, that was the right call. And it, and it ultimately worked out and built this great culture and kind of foundation of the, of the business. I think today, today's environment, maybe there's more talent that's available with more capital and, and stuff like that. So it might be a little bit different but for us. We were extremely cheap, uh, maybe laugh. I remember we had like our Christmas party one year and our office manager for dinner made hot pockets for people in a toaster oven. Out to the hot pocket. There are some, I mean, yeah. there's a pretty solid line though. If you look across the lean pocket, hot pocket lineup, the pepperoni yeah. one is pretty, pretty dope. So that's, I, I know, <laughs> know well. that's hilarious. I love that mindset though. Just frugality. We, we were, we operated the same way. Nico Bonasto said general catalyst. I think we, we were officially called the cockroaches of GC's portfolio at the time, just permanently like in their office, never leaving and just sort of just leeching on to everybody's office space for a good period. So that was our, uh, that was our claim to fame were the cockroaches. In terms of sort of the hiring decisions that you made as you went from zero to one, I guess um, we haven't talked a lot about hiring on this podcast. I'd be curious just to get your thoughts on anything related to growing a team, things that you look for, or were there any sort of gotchas or missteps that you you recognized as you took that first step from zero to one. Yeah, I, I think lots of mistakes and, and hope, hope never to repeat many, most of them. Um, you know, I, I think it's really tempting as like a, a new venture back company to go hire like an executive with the right brand name on their resume that makes you look good in front of your board and to raise additional capital. You're like, man, put that Google logo on a slide for our new head of whatever. So there's a really strong incentive to do that. And I think the reality is that there's not a lot of skills that are translatable from administering a large organization to being a super early stage company. Like they're just dramatically different jobs, mindsets. They attract different people in different financial, with different financial rewards. And a lot of times if you're like a small early stage company and you think you're recruiting someone amazing from these companies, like there's a reason why they might be leaving to come to your startup and B, they might just not be the right fit. And so I think some of the mistakes I made early on were trying to recruit people that like check that brand name box that looked great in the investor deck or the board update, but just did not have the skills or the talent to, to thrive because being the head of X at an early stage company is hard. I mean, you're wearing a ton of hats. It's not it's a very broad role, whereas I think at big companies can be very narrow. And so being kind of thoughtful about that. Meanwhile, the best hires we made were people that were kind of unproven, but were on extremely strong trajectories that 
we'll create culture based that we're going to learn adapt really fast that we're sort of all in and it was like that cohort of people that got the company from zero to one now i think when you go to from one to n bringing people that have scaled businesses before and worked at larger organizations real value there and i think that you got to fit those cultures together but i think one of the mistakes we made was trying to hire those people too early and it just those weren't it wasn't the right people to help build the business solid that's yeah solid advice shifting back to vc mode i feel like we're jumping back and forth from operator to vc but related to hiring i guess with the current economic climate and you've you've been through a couple of waves now you mentioned both on the investment banking side and like having seen seen a couple different waves in the valley we're in the midst of layoffs and market adjustments i'd be curious to get your perspective like what do you think the next 18 months are going to look like and and any specific guidance that you'd share with either your portfolio companies or other founders that are are getting their companies off the ground yeah i think it's possible to know with any real degree of certainty like what the environment's going to do over the next 12 to 18 months i can tweet that it's going to be it's going to rebound and i can tweet that it's going to crash and be terrible and no one really knows and anyone that says they know just doesn't know and so i think like what advice do you give people in that context i i think kind of two things one, I think it's important to realize that the last five years are like highly abnormal. And so if like your pattern recognition comes from the last five years of low interest rates and abundant capital, just know that like there are other climates and environments out there and it's, you know, possible or maybe even likely that we will be in an environment that is nothing like the last five years. And so extrapolating from, oh, like, Oh, it'll be like two or three years ago and it wasn't quite so crazy. No, it actually could be 10 times worse than that. And so really being mindful of a potential downside case, I think is important. And then I think too, though, it's like, we don't know if that downside case is going to happen. It could just rebound. We could have our soft landing. Market was up 600 points yesterday. It's down 700 points today. You know, who knows? There's a lot of sort of volatility. And so I think in that scenario, just sort of preserving optionality and your ability to adapt is key. Like if you are burning tons of cash, you don't have a lot of optionality. And yeah. so thinking about how to be nimble and how to adapt. And if they, if things come back and financing is available, being able to step on the gas and doesn't being able to tap the brakes. I think we're in a period over the next six to 12 months where founders and CEOs need to be really awake and paying attention at the wheel. It's not clear which way to drive. So you're sort of taking each curve as it comes. I know we're coming to the end of our time here. I just wanted to ask what's next for Convective and then was there anything else that that you wanted to plug? Yeah, no, I think Convective is where I'm spending all my time these days. I think that's the right, maybe the right thing to, to, to close on. I think my plug for Convective is just that there's a huge opportunity in climate resilience. We see the world is really waking up to the dangers of climate change. And while a lot of climate investing is focused on longer term things like decarbonization, the reality is that climate change is here today. It's causing economic impact today. And so things like resilience have kind of immediate market opportunities using proven technology. So I think it's one of the most attractive areas in climate to spend time building companies and to invest in. And so I think the real constraint here, honestly, is talent. We don't have enough founders building in this part of the market. So if I can convince just one fintech founder to uh, take a look at fire tech or climate resilience, I think I'll have uh, I'll done my job. And I think, uh, you know, it's an enormous opportunity. Love that. Awesome. Great. Uh, great place to end. 
Bill, again, appreciate you coming on, man. Congratulations on all the prior success. We pay convective. You're bound for for big things and we'll hopefully have a chance to run it back here with you on the podcast here in not too long. Love that. Thanks again for having me and uh, great conversation. Awesome. Thanks, man. All right. That is a wrap. Again, big shout out to Bill Clerico, the entire team at Convective Capital, and just love the mission they're on to help fund companies that are making our world more sustainable and safe, uh, specifically focused on fire tech. Next week on the podcast, we're going to be talking, speaking of fire and sparking things up, we're going to be talking about the cannabis space here on the Assassin's Podcast. We're going to have an industry expert in to talk about his journey building one of the first successful companies in the cannabis space, some of the challenges, successes, failures they had as they were getting their company off the ground and sort of the current state of the cannabis business. Hope everyone is having a great start to the new year. Appreciate everyone tuning in. Hit me up. If you've got ideas for guests that you want to hear on the show, justin at assassins.com. Also, if you get a moment, leave me a review on the Apple App Store. Would love to hear your feedback if you love the show. In the meantime, keep hustling, keep grinding, and keep getting that money. See them dollar signs, assassin state of mind, assassin state of mind, hustle, grind. See them dollar signs way above the bottom line, assassin state of mind, hustle, grind. See them dollar signs, assassin state of mind, assassin state of mind, hustle, grind. See them dollar signs way above the bottom line, assassin state of mind. They say money over everything, everything, Asian again. Shopping for a wedding ring, salary, startups, crypto, stock exchange. Appreciate every penny. Pocket change. One phone call and your life can change. What's your love language? Can't do business if it ain't reciprocated. Closing deals on the day.